Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode, and of course, beware of spoilers. All right, everybody, welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I am a co-host, your co-host, Teresa. And I'm Juliet. And today we are talking about uh, Last Night in Soho, um, written and directed by Edgar Wright, starring Thomas and McKenzie, Anna Taylor-Joy, Matt Smith, and uh, Diana Rigg. I think she might be... What is it called when you're a knight, but you're a woman? A dame. Dame? Yes. Is she a dame? I believe she is. Okay. Yeah. Dame Diana Rigg. Yes, I was correct. Nailed it. All right. Excellent. <laughs> Good memory on my part. RIP to her. She actually died um, like a little over a year ago, September of last year. Uh-huh. She was 82. And before this, I had only ever seen her in um, Game of Thrones. Oh, see, I go way back because I watched the British Avengers. Oh. I have the whole like 75 disc insanity <laughs> box set. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, I've only seen the Uma Thurman Avengers. <laughs> Which is excellent in its terribleness. Yes. I, I, it's not even a guilty pleasure. I will openly scream to the heavens. <laughs> I love that movie. <laughs> it's been a really long time since I've seen it, but I just remember Uma Thurman, cat suit. I was a kid. I was into it. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Connery. Yeah. Furries. What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that it, the, like, design work on the tape, on the VHS tape for that, was really, really close to Batman and Robin. And that's why I, because, you know, Emma Thurman, she's in Batman and Robin, she's in Avengers. I was like, of course I'm going to watch this. <laughs> I watched it at my babysitter's house probably way too many times. Nice. Unlike the... <laughs> 90s version of the Avengers. Uh, Last Night in Soho is actually maybe from this year. So it must have been filmed pre, probably for the most part, pre-pandemic then, if it was ready by this year. I believe so. I believe it was one of the films that was slated for either a late 2020 or early 21 release that then got pushed back and shuffled around and moved all over the place. And this was one that I know that people were worried wasn't going to make it to the theaters was going to go straight to streaming you know when we didn't know some movies were just going straight to streaming some people were holding out some they were doing dual releases and i know this was one that people were a little concerned that you know netflix or something might scoop it up and not do a theatrical for it so we were very lucky to see it in the theater yeah was it i was gonna ask was it a limited release uh no it was wide okay um i don't think as many people picked it up but i mean we saw it at a at a big multiplex but our local art house also had it oh yeah that's right yeah so it was wide okay cool um unlike also unlike the avengers from the 2000s um and unlike a lot of edgar wright's other work this one was definitely not a comedy yeah absolutely not yeah i mean I think that Edgar Wright, he succeeds uh, quite well at, um, at least I personally think so. I love, you know, Hot Fuzz. I love, I love the, what is it called? The Neapolitan trilogy, I think, which is Uh Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz and At World's End. Love all those. So I was excited to see this one. I'm also excited to see a movie um, that he's doing that does not feature Simon Pegg or uh, um, Nick... uh, Nick Frost. I'm shocked that he didn't like sneak them in somewhere, like that they weren't like one of the guys in the club. Or they could. They could have been uh, one of the dudes at the pub. It's possible. <laughs> they could. They could have just been drinking a pint down in the. It's possible in the pub they that really worked out somewhere in there. <laughs> um, and uh, featuring a lot of women. Yeah. As leads, so Thomas and Mackenzie as uh, Eloise or Ellie, Anna Taylor Joy as Sandy. Anna Taylor-Joy has been on this huge upswing right now. Um, And Thomas and Mackenzie, I think she's been in a lot of movies that have kind of flown under the radar. She did, um, she was in Old, Mm -hmm. um, which we also saw. Um, She was in a TV show that I watched recently, and I can't think of it now. I'm sure I'll think of it at a really inopportune time, but... (laughs) Just um, shout it out when it comes to you. 
yeah, um, Diana Rigg, who's an incredibly famous actress and in her own right. And then Matt Smith, obviously, of Doctor Who fame and other things. But Doctor Who is like the thing that everybody remembers him doing. <laughs> so, yeah. And I love I love anytime you see any of the Doctor Who's, but Matt Smith in particular playing the polar opposite of their doctor. Yeah. And it, it tends to work out really well. David Tennant uh-huh. and Jessica Jones, like Matt Smith and this, he was a very good bad guy. Uh, really reprehensible. Very, very. <laughs> Not a single moment where you like, oh, no, I'm on this guy's side. Never, ever. Yeah, not a redeeming bone in his body in this one. <laughs> um, so so uh, just a brief summary, I guess. It's uh, Ellie, who's mm-hmm. a... Um, looks like she has had some loss in her life. I think her mom had... I think it's implied. I don't know if they say it out loud, but it's implied that her mom had committed suicide. Yeah. Or, or overdosed. Maybe both. Um... Yeah, definitely. Uh, So they definitely talk about the fact that her mother had some mental health issues and whether it was an intentional, you know, death by suicide or an accidental overdose is a little vague, but it's, it's heavily implied that this was all tied into her, her mental health issues. Sure. Um, and Ellie seems to be a bit of a medium. She mm-hmm. she still sees her mom. Um, she lives with her grandma, who's just the sweetest old lady. I know. <laughs> She's just such a sweet lady. Um, and Ellie is trying to get into and successfully gets into uh, fashion college in, L- in London. So she goes to this. She's able to get in. Seems like it's going to be a big move for her because she's not necessarily a a big city girl. She's only been there, I think, once before. Right. With her mother. Right. When she was younger. So this is definitely a a sort of a fish out of water story. Somebody who's from a really small town, very small community, is now going to the big city of London. (laughs) So, um, and not only just going to the big city of London, but also going to do a... um, Fashion college, which is seems like it's a generational thing. Her mother was a uh, did a lot of fashion design. Her grandmother was a seamstress, so now she's going to fashion college in London, kind of to be like the the culmination of those generations of uh, generations of sewing work. And then, um, so she's not only a fish out of water, but this is also extremely important to her to be able to do this and to do it without help it seems like she doesn't want to ask for help very much so and then she goes to the dorm and it doesn't really work out so she the real start of the story is her getting this really really cool flat in london um because i'm going to refer to it as a flat because that's what they call it i think it sounds (laughs) fancy it is fancy (laughs) but she gets like a this really cool flat not super expensive affordable for her and uh, weird stuff starts happening. She um, seems to be a bit sensitive in terms of being a medium. So uh, the walls are making her have these really crazy dreams. And that's kind of where the story spins off into um, when, what ends up being uh, like a horror thriller, I think. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What were your initial thoughts? Starting off, I loved the juxtaposition of 60s era London with modern London. Uh, The movie transports you kind of in two ways. You're in Ellie's world of modern day London, of fashion college, um, beautiful people, beautiful imagery um, through the eyes of somebody who's experiencing it for the first time along with you, which is really cool. And then uh, the dream sequences are beautiful, beautifully shot. Um, Edgar Wright, as always, curates music like phenomenally. Music is a big part of this movie. And I liked it, um, except for the end. Yeah. Which we'll, we'll get to. Or I don't know if you want to skip right to the end, but um, what... First of all, what were your kind of first impressions of this? So I definitely have to ditto your, um, your like, beautiful imagery. Like, the use of light and color in the movie is really, really cool. 
Um, they're like, you can see it on the poster and I didn't really, um, understand it so much until after I watched the movie, but the red, there's red, white, and blue in the poster too, just like Mm -hmm. in her neon light in her room. And you'll see that in the trailer too, but blue is more Ellie, red is more Sandy. Um, so that when you're transported back into sixties, London, it's lots of red, lots of red inside the clubs, lots of red light, lots of red dresses or orange dresses or, you know, tones of red as where Ellie is more, I think she's supposed to be like white and blue at the same time. At least that's what I, that's what I took from kind of the poster, but it's gorgeous. Absolutely fantastically shot. Some vertigo dizzying uh, shots, but in a great way. It's awesome. And as somebody who's only ever been inside of a train station in London, seeing like high class London and all of the famous sites in Piccadilly Square and stuff like that all at once is like, it's jaw dropping. It's, it's really like it transports you to being there. And then when you have to go back to the sixties as somebody who's totally a sixties file, like I'm, I'm having such a great time seeing the dancing, the, once again, the music have to ditto you on the music too. Loved the music. The score is just fantastic. The versions of the songs that he used were just um, perfect for the movie. It really makes you feel like it gives you it gives you goosebumps. You're like, I am in the 60s. I am at a club, like a swing club, a dance club. Um, I am there. And it's also so cool because when you're when you're going from the the modern day Ellie, Ellie is shy. She's kind of demure. She's like I said, a fish out of water. It's all new for her. She's um, experiencing this all for the first time. And she's definitely overwhelmed. And then you get transported back to the 60s and you have Sandy. Ellie becomes Sandy. She's seeing Sandy both through Sandy's eyes and also kind of as like an omniscient sometimes too. It's kind of both. But Sandy is sexual. She is confident. She knows what she's got. She knows she's a dancer and a singer and she knows that she's going to be a star. So it's like this, this crazy contrast between Ellie, who is struggling to find her place in London in this really new world. And Sandy, who's like, no, I know exactly what I want. I know I'm going to get it and I will do whatever it takes to do it. So yeah, I, I have to agree with you that those, the, the stylized part of the movie perfect. I think it was spot on. I don't know anything about London. Maybe somebody who lived in London in the 60s would be like, no, not quite. But but it works because it's a dream. Sure. Yeah. So you it know? could be whatever she wants. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I want to hit on something you said. Um, you were talking about the way that Ellie is both Sandy and kind of omniscient in the dream sequences. And I really loved that because when you think about dreams Mm -hmm. that is kind of how many of us are positioned within our own dreams we're both embodying somebody who is us or adjacent to us but we're also watching it as if watching a movie and so um i think edgar wright through the direction really captured that very very well totally yeah like the um like the disorientation of being like in two places at once and experiencing something in somebody's body and also seeing yourself outside of it. Because there are some moments when she sees herself as Sandy and then other moments where she can see herself separate from that. So I think it's, um, I think that's right. Like it's, it's definitely just like a dream where you can be both. And, um, so yeah, I, I agree with you. I also had some problems with the end. I suppose we'll get there. Um, one thing though, that you asked me, like the very first question that you asked me afterwards, you were like, do you think Ellie is asexual? Please expand on that. Okay. Um, I had a couple of thoughts about that. As I was watching it, I couldn't help but notice the very stark intentional contrast between Sandy's sexuality and Ellie's, um, lack of sexuality and not just in a oh, I'm, you know, I'm a country girl going to the big city and, and you know, maybe she hasn't had a lot of relationships. It struck me as more. It mm-hmm. didn't strike me as someone who was just inexperienced or shy. Um, the way that she reacted to and responded to um, 
a potential suitor, a character who I loved, by the way. Yeah. Um, to me, really made me wonder. Um, and some of the scenes in her dorm room as well before she left really made me wonder. It felt more than just a moral judgment about her peers' promiscuity or um, shyness or apprehension. It it felt like she was very much separate and apart mm-hmm. um, from what you were seeing as more, air quotes, typical sexual behavior for college kids. Sure. So I, I'm not convinced... I, I don't know. I go back and forth as to whether whether I'm fully behind that or not. But mm-hmm. I just, the whole movie, I was thinking, oh, maybe she is asexual or maybe she is somebody who is discovering she's bisexual or a lesbian because the thing with Ellie and Sandy is, mm-hmm. is she, does she want to be Sandy is she in love with San? Like yeah. what that that relationship? You see it manifest in a lot of different ways throughout mm-hmm. the movie. So I don't know. I'm not like I'm not sitting here saying yes, one hundred percent. Ellie is asexual, or Ellie is bi, or pansexual, or a lesbian. I'm just saying the movie raised a lot of questions for me. Sure, um, and I like that. I like that yeah. it's open to interpretation. Yeah. I definitely think that she had some repressed sexuality, like mm-hmm. for sure. Um, so when she when she first starts to see Sandy in those dreams, she starts modeling herself as Sandy. She starts wanting to look like Sandy. She cuts her hair. She dyes it just like Sandy. She starts designing a dress just like she saw Sandy wear. Um, so there's definitely a level of devotion because also she will go straight home and go right to bed so that she can experience that dream again. And Ellie is kind of, she fetishizes the sixties. She loves the Beatles. She only listens to records from the sixties, that kind of thing. So it's partially that, but also like she is so desperate to be back with this person that she will go right home, right to bed. Um, So I definitely thought that there was some repressed sexuality. She was having trouble with coming to terms with who she is and coming to terms with her own sexuality because you see Sandy who has a grasp of it and she uses it to um, get what she wants in terms of men. She knows exactly what she wants. She knows what she looks like. She knows that men are attracted to her. And so she's going to use that to further her own devices. Um, as where Ellie, she's having these dreams which are more and more sexualized she has a relationship with John, um, who is played by Michael Ajao. I think his last name is Ajao. I'm probably pronouncing that right. Sorry, Michael. Um, he is an incredible boyfriend, uh, a suitor character. He's patient. He's kind. He's gentle. He asks questions, you know, like what we know now to be the per- like the perfect boyfriend, or at least try And he's also very patient with Ellie, um, knowing that she's having a hard time, like, finding herself. So, but as Ellie's, um, because she completely leaves dorm life, like, I I don't even think it takes her a couple of days. She's just like, I'm out. I gotta go. Um, But as her dreams get more and more sexualized, her life starts to kind of spiral apart. Um, Which, that's partially the content of her dreams being really disturbing, but also partially that she, I don't think, is able to understand that sort of a life, or that lifestyle, or, like, having relationships. And so it forces her to have some breakdowns in school and among other people. So I, I, that's what I thought was, I don't know if she's asexual, but she's definitely repressing her sexuality and not sure how she fits into London life. I want to talk about John a little more. What a great character and what a well-written character. Typically in films with a woman as a lead, um, especially a younger woman who's sort of in that vulnerable, discovering uh, phase of their life and then is also experiencing whatever the plot device for the horror film is. Sure. Um, the, the boyfriend character, because it's almost always a boyfriend and never a girlfriend, (laughs) um, the, the boyfriend character is always, 
there to help, but is very much ready to step in and be the hero and is often in the end, kind of the hero. Sure. And John was not this. Right. Very willing to help, but very much shown in so many different ways. Like, dude is not the hero. Right. Dude is not the strong one. Yeah. He's very much supportive. Like, his strength comes from support, but he is, you know, he's not rushing in at the end to save her or anything. He's like, I'll drive you. Uh, I will absolutely drive you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, really, really, especially when you have a character who's starting to have those um, sexual encounters, and I'm just going to bring up Scream because that's a really easy one that I can think of off the top of my head. Nev Campbell, not comfortable with sex. She finally decides that she's comfortable with sex, and then Skeet Ulrich is like, oh, now we're all about it. Right. John is not like that. He's like, do you want to kiss? Do you feel comfortable with this? Is this okay? He's definitely asking those things. And even even after Ellie has a complete breakdown, very embarrassing encounter when they're about to actually have sex, he still is like, I still want to help you. I still care about you. Even if that didn't work out, even if I got kicked out by your landlord, um, I don't care. I still care about you. And let's note that in that scene, when she has the, the you know, very embarrassing breakdown that is that is partially prompted by the visions and the dreams, mm-hmm. never once does he blame her. Yeah. He immediately is like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do anything. I didn't, you yeah. know, did I hurt you? Are you okay? Yeah. It wasn't, oh, you're just crazy or yeah. whatever. And, and just like running out and leaving her to be there. He was really trying to help her, yeah. although she couldn't vocalize what was happening to her. And that's another, maybe another reason why you got that asexual vibe is this incredibly, like, insanely big breakdown that she has is triggered by at least her first sexual encounter that we see on screen. Right. That, like, um, she kisses Mike, or she kisses John earlier in the movie, but this is the first time that she actually, like, has a, a a real sexual encounter and then she freaks out. Yeah, and I think I think it's important to um for folks who may be unfamiliar with um with the terms here, asexual does not necessarily, though can, mean aromantic. Right. And I don't think Ellie is aromantic. No. Um at all. No. Yeah. Um but she may be asexual. Yeah. Because this is a a real breakthrough for her. Her dreams had some sometimes somewhat kind of gone, you know, through come through into real life, but had never been to this point where she's like having a full dissociative experience. There's a mirror, or she's seeing a mirror over her bed, and she's seeing a brutal murder happen on the bed that she's laying on, and experiencing it as though she is the one that's ha- like that's happening to. And this is happening all the while her landlord is standing in the doorway screaming because she's not supposed to have any boys there. Um, John is like, are you okay? I don't understand what's happening. And she just, she's screaming and she can't vocalize what's happening because how are you supposed to tell two people in the very real physical world that you're seeing a vision from the past and you are convinced that it actually happened? And... That's the kind of interesting thing. I mean, it factors into the twist of mm-hmm. the movie and starts to move us toward the less than stellar ending. But yeah. um, that murder didn't happen. Right, exactly. Which is weird because I'm thinking the whole time because there's that whole part that they talk about where um, memories can be absorbed into the walls yeah. of a place. And you can experience those memories. The ghosts don't exist. I can't remember which character says that. Is it her landlord? I believe so, yes. Okay, that's right. Because Ellie goes to her and says, did a murder ever happen in this room? And her landlord's like, ghosts don't exist. But memories kind of absorb into the walls. And sometimes those memories come out. And that's kind of like what she tells Ellie anyways. But then the memory that she's... The memory quotes, air quotes, that she's experiencing... It's not really a memory. It's right. like a f- fake thing. So now I kind of have to wonder, 
was it real? Was that really a memory that she was having? Or is this just a figment of her imagination? I don't know. Maybe an escape, like a an outlet for her brain because she's yeah. getting ready to have sex and she's not ready. Yeah. And so it's easier to escape into into this world that she's been led into through some kind of associative memory or, you know. Um... They don't say it out outright, I don't think. But we also kind of have to wonder if she got drugged. Because that was right after the party. Right. And there's like this kind of loaded scene where her former dorm roommate, who she's not super, she's not close friends with or anything. They're kind of, her her former dorm mate is kind of uh, catty, a um, little bit vengeful. And there's a, a part where she's very, she very clearly hands Ellie and John drinks. And she's like, drink up. And they do. And... It's kind of loaded. Like, did she drug her? Did she not drug her? Because John doesn't seem to feel any effects of that. Right. Because he's not tripping. He's not having these weird visions. He doesn't seem to be acting strange at all, really. But Ellie is really, truly having a bad time. So if she did get drugged, maybe that was a function of that. But I don't think we'd know one way or the other 100%. Yeah, no, they leave that vague. And I had forgotten that part until you mentioned it. That, I totally did too. <laughs> yeah, that it's entirely possible that she was drugged. And that could certainly influence, even if she was channeling into that sort of past dreamscape, that would mm-hmm. obviously warp it. Sure. Oh, yeah, for sure. All of the other things I have are absolutely about the <laughs> surrounding the ending of this so so shall we shall we skip ahead we'll, and just yes all let's. right let's get right into the spoilery stuff all right um so the spoiler the twist is that sandy never actually really died in that room it was not a real memory that ellie was seeing sandy is actually the landlord and owner of the building that she's in And so she kind of did all of the, um, she was, um, and I guess we should probably say too. So Sandy was like a singer and dancer. She wanted to be a star. So she goes to this club and Matt Smith kind of takes her under his wing. And then he starts pimping her out. And he's like, that's the only way you're going to get to the top, babe. You got to sleep with these powerful businessmen. And then we get these really depressing, uh, dreary, sequences where Sandy is just sleeping with the same dude over and over and over and over, or not the same dude, but similar men over and over and over again, because Matt Smith is pimping her out. And he's like, this is the only way to get to the top. So we find out that the landlord is actually Sandy. She didn't end up actually uh, dying or being murdered by Matt Smith's character, as we see in Ellie's uh, crazy uh, a dream sequence, but she actually was the one to murder all of these guys to murder all these Johns to murder Matt Smith. And then this progression of guys who were coming to her for sex and she would just murder them and then bury them in the walls of this, of this house. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the spoiler. Yeah. Which I love. I should be clear. Yeah. I love that part of the ending. Yes. Yeah. It's the rest of it that I didn't love. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me about what you didn't love. Okay. After that. So to bring a little more context, um, Ellie is starting to figure all of this out. She's, she's doing all of this research. She goes to the police who, um, don't believe her in a way that I feel like was intentionally written to be about sexual assault and, and lack of belief, uh, for survivors. Right. Which was really, really powerful in the way that it was written. So they don't believe her. She does all this research in the library during which she has another freak out and sees the, the images. And I'm going to say images for this moment. And then I'll explain it here in a minute of all of these men, all of the, the Johns, all of Sandy's Johns who are seeming, she thinks, and we, the viewer are led to believe to attack her. They're chasing her. They're chasing her. So we'll get back to those guys here in a minute. So she's unraveling all of this. A police woman sort of takes a little bit of sympathy and and looks into things a little bit. And 
at one point, Ellie comes back home and she talks to her landlady. And the landlady mentions that, oh, well, a, a police person stopped by uh, earlier today and was asking all of these questions. And that's when we get the big reveal. Mm-hmm. Ah, Sandy is the landlady. Mm-hmm. But the thing I had a problem with is from there, Sandy, older Sandy, played by Diana Rigg, views Ellie as the enemy and then tries to kill Ellie. Yeah. And I just, (laughs) it just didn't work for me because, number one, this woman is not... Like your typical serial killer. No. It's not like, oh, I've been, you know, I've killed all of my lodgers or anything like that. Like, this is not tourist trap or anything like that. (laughs) She killed a very specific group of men at a very specific time in her life for a very specific reason. And she was done. Yeah. And throughout the movie, you get this sense through some of the conversations she has with Ellie that she is protective of young women, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. she understands the risks for young women. And, you know, at certain points, you're like, cool, good good looking out. Mm -hmm. But also, maybe your views are a little antiquated. Well, now we know why, because, you know, she's a survivor. She's experienced all of this. But I just, I did not like her turning on Ellie. It right. just was contrary to everything that movie was saying. Yeah. About about being a woman. Yeah. It was an hour and 45 minutes. I actually specifically wrote this in my notes. We're, we're an hour and 45 minutes in of seeing all of these memories of Sandy being abused and exploited by men, by rich men, and by Matt Smith. And then at the, at the end... At the denouement, we're like, we're supposed to be, or we're like, oh, she's a bad guy now. And one of the other parts of the turn that was so confusing and gave, and I literally described this as giving me whiplash, is these ghosts, which you had put on pause. These ghosts are not actually chasing Ellie. They're begging her for help. (laughs) And, And so we're meant to feel bad for these men. Now, keep in mind... These aren't just men who are like, oh, we're having a transaction. I'm paying you for sex and then I'm leaving. These are men who are part of a club that Matt Smith is curating. And they are going to him to specifically exploit women so that they can, first of all, cater to their own sexual needs. And then dangle success over these young women as their reward for having sex with these men. So I don't exactly think that I feel bad that they got murdered. Is murder a an extreme consequence for this? Of course, it's a movie. However, why would I feel bad? Why yeah. would I why would I feel sympathetic for these guys? Yeah, this was not a consensual sex worker client relationship that Sandy had with these men. No. This was, you know, she was being forced into this by someone who appeared to care about her and Mm -hmm. obviously did not care only about her worth as a sexual being. Mm -hmm. Um, They made it very clear in several montages that there were a lot of drugs and alcohol involved. So she was being coerced into Mm -hmm. this, that she was not happy that the money the money wasn't great it wasn't like she was like oh cool like i'm making bank on these men this is this is my job no 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 i i didn't and and it was clear that everybody in this scenario knew that this was not a good or healthy situation right right these were guys this this she was not she was certainly not the first person that they had been with and she was basically trafficked by yeah. by Matt Smith um, because she didn't want to do this. The the and uh, something that I wrote down was the illegality of those men, their actions, and the fact that she was not a prostitute, not somebody protected even by like you know a community of women who are are sex workers. She she was not that. She was a. Uh, like she wanted to be a singer and a dancer and that was it 
So she's not protected by anybody. Matt Smith is, I would say, her pimp, but, I mean, as far as that goes, not even really a good one at that. So the illegality of those, what those men were doing was making it so that the women, the the singers, the, the dancers, and Sandy couldn't go anywhere. They right. couldn't go to anybody. Although there is a red herring character where... There's an older character that kind of follows Ellie around in the real world. And um, he ends up being... Because you you assume that he's Matt Smith. Ellie Ellie makes the connection that this guy is Matt Smith, but old. Because he does act real weird. Yeah. <laughs> not not going to lie. He's real sketchy. <laughs> he just says some weird stuff to Ellie. Yeah. He acts strange towards her. He specifically asks for her at the bar that she works at, which I think is very strange. Um. And he's about the age that Matt Smith's character would be. And it just, every interaction with him is just so strange, but it ends up that he was actually a vice cop. But that's as far as it goes. Right. Like, it's he's just straight up a red herring. No further connection to Sandy. He didn't, like, end up helping her hide these bodies or anything like that, cover up these murders, what have you. And I was, like, I was a little disappointed. I felt like they could have, like, wrapped him in a little bit more. Yeah, we never see Sandy connecting with other women. Rarely do we see her around other women besides just background extras. There is one scene where we're kind of backstage in one of the clubs. Mm -hmm. And we see other women, but they're all set up to be, like, both and, either or being exploited themselves or being involved in some sort of activity that is definitely set up to be um, seedy or criminal or sinister Um, through Ellie's eyes. Certainly there's, um, you know, needle drug use. There's some really sketchy non-consensual BDSM stuff happening yep. backstage. There's sort of all of this, all of this behavior that we're experiencing. And that's kind of the only time we see other women as real characters in the past, like in Sandy's world. So right. she's just surrounded by these men who are just using her right. seemingly all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it definitely didn't feel it felt like the natural progression of the movie was sort of stunted. And it wasn't like a twist that it like the tw- the twist of Sandy being the landlord was great. The the tw- the follow-up to that though of Sandy deciding that Ellie can't leave there knowing what happened when Ellie certainly would have been sympathetic to all of the the torture that she went through, because she absolutely was. She cared about Sandy, and she cared about what happened to her, and she was utterly convinced that she had been murdered, to the point where she had kind of overridden her better judgment and gone to the police and said, hey, there was a murder here 60 years ago, and I can only prove it to you because I've been having dreams about it. She overrode her sense of better, like her, her, um, sense of judgment to do this thing and actually recruited the help of multiple people to do it. And yet when the, when Sandy finds out that Ellie knows or suspects and has gone to the police, it's like a switch flips and she just decides, well, Ellie can't live with the knowledge that I am the, I am the bad guy. And, and even that, like, it doesn't, it doesn't make, it doesn't even make sense to me as a risk. Mm-hmm. Because even if she wasn't like, even if she didn't pick up on the thing that I did, which was like, oh, like, Ellie is like the one person who believes in yeah. Sandy and yeah. believes Sandy's story and has seen it the way that Sandy has experienced it. Like, it seems like nobody else knows Sandy's truth. And Ellie is the closest person to know Sandy's truth. Even if we set all of that aside... It's not like she would get caught. Everybody thinks Ellie is crazy. Yes, absolutely. They make that very clear in the scene with the police. That, like, the policewoman just stopped by to check on Ellie. Not to be like, oh, I'm hunting down the clues and it's led me here. It's like, no, I'm checking on this crazy girl who showed up at the station and said she dreamt about a murder in 1968. Yeah. And she she was, like, 
clearly having a bad time too. She yeah. was she looked strung out even though she wasn't. She had just been to a party, but she looked like she was she was going rowdy. Yeah. <laughs> um she yeah, one thing I just like it just popped into my mind. Maybe uh, I know that this is kind of going back, but the scene where Ellie sees Sandy getting murdered, maybe it was Sandy's like rendition of her old self dying. Like that's why she was the one who got murdered in that memory. And it was partially a cover. Like obviously Ellie couldn't see Matt Smith get murdered, but Sandy died. Like Sandy died that night. And then there the was landlady, a line to yeah, that effect. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that was it. Maybe she was, that was a real experience that came from Sandy's brain that the old her, the used her, the version of her that allowed herself to be exploited in pursuit of her goals died. And instead this kind of like dowager, um, older woman kind of, she took herself back. And, um, as far as we know, she never succeeded in being a singer or a dancer. She kind of relegated herself to obscurity, but mostly it was for safety's sake. Um, she probably couldn't go out without Matt Smith, without a bunch of people asking questions. So she's like, nope, I'm just going to live a quiet life. I'm going to get this building that I'm living in and um, I'm going to hide all these bodies in the walls. But that's the old me. That's the death of me. So maybe that was it. I, I just popped into my head that that could be imagery for that. So that's entirely possible. Yeah, I just think that it was like a natural progression towards an end where you find out that the landlady is is the one, is the Sandy. And then it's like the one person who knows what happened to you and saw it happen. And maybe Ellie wouldn't have been down with murder, but she could have been like, uh, she literally says, I would never tell. I would never right. tell. I would never repeat this story to anybody. And I feel like there's a connection in that conversation where Sandy's kind of unfolding everything for her. There's a connection where Ellie's like, oh, all the pieces are put together. I get it now. Why there's so many missing people in this area. I get it. But then she's like, nope, gonna set you on fire. And yeah, yeah it's just it like... Because there's a whole scene where Sandy's chasing Ellie through this house. Up the stairs... Lots of, like, falling down. Ellie's been drugged, so you think that she's going to pass out. I don't think she does. I think she ends up, like, I can't remember what happens. Because didn't, didn't Sandy drug her tea or something? She did, yes. Okay. But she makes it up the stairs, although she can't walk very well. And then the the whole place is going is on fire. Ellie gets up the stairs. She gets on the bed, and that's the part where all those spirits are like begging her for help. They're like, "Kill her, kill her, uh, and save even, us, save us." And even then, Ellie's like, "No, I won't kill her." Even though Sandy has absolutely gone for her throat, yeah, <laughs> like she's gonna kill her and stuff her in the walls. She says as much, like, "I'm gonna kill you. You, you can't live after this." But yet somehow. Even after that, even after these weird spirits begging for help, Ellie's still like, no, I won't hurt you. So then Sandy's sitting there, the whole house is on fire, and then she kind of has this reckoning moment where finally she's like, well, I guess there's nowhere else for me to go, so I'm just going to sit here and burn alive. Yeah, me and the ghosts are going to all go to hell together or something. Like, (laughs) It just, it felt so strange to have... To have, like, this whole connection, and then Sandy tries to kill Ellie, and then Sandy's like, okay, not doing this anymore. Not gonna, not gonna kill anybody anymore. I, I, what I did was a bad thing. And then Ellie gets out. It's like, (laughs) it just, it seemed like it, it was against the natural progression, the flow of this movie, having that kind of thing happen, where we have, like, this murder scene and then and then sandy being like well guess i'm just gonna die i wanted sandy to be at the fashion show with her at the end yeah you know because all the dresses were inspired oh yeah by sandy and by the dreams like 
I wanted her to be sitting there and see the pink dress and they just kind of shared like a knowing look yeah. and that was that. And like Ellie keeps her secrets. She's yeah. uh, she's in solidarity with Sandy and Sandy kind of becomes a, f- a mother figure almost. But instead, Sandy dies. I guess a piece of her is still with Ellie towards the end of the movie because she does see her in the reflection of the mirror, um, just like she sees her mom. So a piece of her is there, um, whether that be... Ellie's fantasy or whether it be an actual medium, you know? Yeah. What did you think of that at the end? And was that friendly or was that sinister? I took it as sinister myself. I thought it was a malevolent, like a, I am here in spite of, in spite of this, not as a friendly overseer. It could have been that it could have been like, oh, she's a motherly figure. I took it as sinister, unwanted, um, overshadowed type thing mm-hmm. like i am always with you look at all of the success that you have on behalf of me and you'll never forget that kind of thing you'll never be able to escape me okay so i just had a thought if we're going with that does that make ellie uh, not in the same way obviously does that make her almost like matt smith because her success is built on Sandy's suffering. Yeah, I think I could take it that way, or I could take it in that Sandy is, like, gloating. Like, Uh I will always stay with you because what you have is because of me. Mm -hmm. And I never got to enjoy my success, so now I'm going to haunt your own. So, um, which, by the way, at the end of the movie, John is totally still with Ellie. And, like, a supportive, a cute, supportive boyfriend. And Grandma comes down from whatever small hamlet she's from (laughs) and she comes down she's like i'm so proud of you ellie and she's just so cute and you're like please please be on the next season of great british bake-off because i can't stand it if you're not (laughs) she's just so she's cute as a button but i i thought that that ending thing was a little bit i took it as malevolent did you think it was friendly or did you think oh no i took it as totally malevolent okay all right. Well, I'm glad that we're on the same page about that. <laughs> had she had she not tried to kill her, I'd be like, oh, she's yeah. like she's like her mom. Yeah. She's another like lady ghost supporting <laughs> this young woman's journey in life. But no, oh no, no, nope. no, no, nope. It was like old Sandy, the better broken, exploited Sandy, um, and she kind of has this like knowing sort of like self. Uh, uh, I don't know how I want to, I don't know the word to say it, but like, she's, um, kind of full of herself, like this, um, overly self-confident look on her face. So it's not like a sweet, oh, I'm so glad to see you succeed. It's like a, it's like, it's just more mean, mean spirited. It's funny because actually that brings up a great point that, um, I can't believe I didn't think of earlier to talk about Anna Taylor-Joy barely talks oh yeah in this movie and yet she acts the crap out of it yeah it's all it's all facial expression and body Mm. language oh yeah she has like maybe two or three scenes where she speaks yeah and it's very minimal dialogue one the one whole scene basically all she says is her name right over well versions of her name over and over and over again because i think her name is actually alexandra Yes. But she goes by Sandy, but she's like telling all these Johns just different versions of her name and they just keep saying, what a lovely name over and over and over again. The scenes where she sings are really, really cool. There's a part where they have like, the person is in silhouette and there's like singing happening. And I thought it was going to be the credits, but maybe I can't remember that the whole part of the movie is kind of a blur for me because I was just like squinting at the screen. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but this, the parts where Anna Taylor-Joy sings are really, really cool. Yeah. Um, even if it's not her really singing. If it is, props to her because she's got some pipes. If it's not, then she did a really, really good job of lip syncing. Mm-hmm. Um, the dancing is super cute. But yeah, she doesn't she doesn't do a lot of talking. Which we saw in The Queen's Gambit, which, love it or hate it, she's she did a great job in it. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the same thing. Very subtle. Um, she's very poised. I think that's something that you can say to um, as a like a com- um, comparison of her and Thomas and Mackenzie. Thomas and Mackenzie, fantastic actress, 
a little bit more, I, I feel like gawky isn't the right word, but she knows how to use her body language to convey that she's uncomfortable or maybe mm-hmm. unconfident or in unconfident, unconfident. And I haven't seen Thomas McKenzie play anything like Anna Taylor Joy. So maybe once we see her kind of break out into some other roles, we'll be able to see that. But Anna Taylor Joy is very much a self-confident actress to the point where she can totally pull that off. I mean, when we get introduced to her in the movie, she's just like strutting through this club. Just no, no prisoners. She's not taking any prisoners. She just strolls right in through this club. She tells them, I want to talk to the owner because I am going to be the next headliner at this club, which everybody's kind of like, what? (laughs) Who's this? (laughs) I've never even seen this girl before, but she just walk straight in and says, I know exactly what I want to do. Um, so yeah, I just have to, we have to give props to both of them because just incredible. Um, and of course, Diana Rigg plays a great, um, evil old lady, even if we didn't really agree with the way that her storyline went. So final thoughts. It's one I definitely want to watch again, if only for the flashback sequences, because Mm -hmm. it's so fun to be in that world. Um, but I don't think I don't think the ending is going to win me over even on a rewatch. Yeah. Um, final thoughts for me: more female solidarity. If you're going to go with it, write it out. Write it all the way to the bitter, unhappy end. Don't try and yeah. pander to any sort of audience. Just write it out. Just keep your female solidarity all the way through, and it'll make your female viewers a lot more happy. So yeah. Amen. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com, Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and on Twitter at FinalGirlsPod. Our theme music is by House Ghost and available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And tell your friends about us. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. 